Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ron Suskind, an author of several books about the Bush and Obama administrations, who's now in residence as a senior fellow at the Harvard Safra Center for Ethics. Ron's latest book, Life Animated, took on a far more personal topic, covering his family's journey after his son Owen was diagnosed with regressive autism at the age of three. Ron? Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. So a big turn in your family's story came when you discovered the ability to communicate with Owen um, through the use of Disney characters. Yeah. Can you describe how, how, how you came to that realization? Sure, sure. Um, it's uh, it's now all over the internet. You can yeah. see videos, podcasts. Uh, basically, we lost him around three years old. He's a late-onset autism guy, and that's about a third to a quarter of all the, the cases, which is now one in 68 kids in the United States and one in 42 boys because it's four to one boy to girl. And at that point, the effect is, for a parent, is that your child essentially vanishes on you. It's like they've been kidnapped. Now, obviously, it's the same kid before and after, but the effect is quite startling and and terrifying. Uh, What we find, though, he loses all speech. He was chatting away at two and a half. I love you. Let's get ice cream. Where are my Ninja Turtles? Usual stuff. Mm -hmm. And then not speaking at all for about a year, year and a half. And what we found he liked, though, was the Disney animated movies. Now, he's 23 now, so anyone of that age range, and for most people, know that Disney had a, had four big hits, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. Mm-hmm. You know, these are some of the biggest movies made in those years, biggest yep. grossing movies. And he loved them before the autism, and after he, well, he locked on to them. He watched them incessantly. And after a while, we found that he was verbalizing, couldn't really understand like gibberish, baby talk, but that some of the sounds matched up with phrases in the movies. He was saying juicer voice. We thought he wanted more juice, didn't want the juice. And we realized it was just your voice, which is what Ursula the Sea Witch says to Ariel, the selfish young lady who wants her man, mm-hmm. uh, what she'll trade to become human. She has to trade her voice. And Owen, of course... Uh, locked on to that key phrase. Now, doctors at that point said, well, he probably doesn't know what the sounds mean. Uh, Folks with autism, kids lose their auditory processing abilities, means they don't understand the sounds. Uh, But we said, well, and the next year was Booty Lies Witten, that's Beauty Lies Within. He seems to be getting the key ideas of these movies. Eventually, we realized that he was memorizing dozens of hours of Disney of Disney lyric dialogue from the movies. And we started to speak to him in Disney dialogue. So essentially, if you threw him a line, he'd throw you back the next line. Now, you were going to run out pretty quickly. Right. He could go for hours. So we'd watch the movies. We'd turn them on and get some more lines and then play some more roles. And and in Disney, there's 50 animated movies since Snow White in 1937. Almost everything's in there. So that's how we built a model to use his affinity, his interest in Disney, um, which and these are obsessions most therapists felt and still feel some. Uh, we felt uh, and cut them off. You know that's perseverative. It could be trains or maps. It could be Disney. It could be anime. Mm-hmm. Uh, cutting it off doesn't really work. We said these are more pathway than prison. We lived inside his affinity. Eventually, we found within there was navigation equipment, symbolic thought and speech, and eventually we all emerged together. And, and in some ways, the big idea is that all of us reveal our deepest capabilities through our passions. 
doesn't even feel like work to us. That's really us. Mm-hmm. And uh, and folks on the autism spectrum are many or many folks who are neurologically distinctive. Let's just say ADHD, OCD, folks who don't fit very well. Well, they're of course just that way. Mm-hmm. Extreme versions of us. And um, and so that uh, idea. Uh, of reversing the telescope and looking at many of these expressions neurologically as not necessarily disability, but being differently abled, if you will. Uh, That has created what's now called an affinity movement. We have people from all over the world, and not just areas of, of neuropsychology, but also educational realms, saying, you know, this is actually the way the world more and more works, where folks find their thing early on, you know, little peanuts out there. Mm-hmm. If you're online, they get to self-nourish from early ages. Mm-hmm. And in that self-nourishing, they're building skills that often go quite deep and expertise. And rather than telling them, sit down and shut up and don't talk about that in school, I think a lot of teachers and a lot of therapists are saying, no, no, that's the gateway. And that's where they are most themselves. So let's help them be even more themselves and even build skills that end up being prized in the economy, in the workplace, and obviously embraced in their life. So that's a big, lovely change. Tom Insel at the NIH calls it a reversal of the telescope. After the book came out, as most people or many people know, I testified in front of Congress. I spoke to the General Assembly of the United Nations. I think people are getting this, and it's creating, I think, virtuous change, uh, kind of a bucking bronco, a wave of change. Which, uh, which is, is some of what I do these days to manage and guide that. So it seems like some of this affinity therapy has been under research. You've been involved with the process. What, what is the status of that? Are, are there good signs? Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. So, so around the time of the book's publication last April, uh, MIT and Yale and Cambridge University all announced that they were uh, going to attempt to study these affinities as, as neuroscience to understand... Uh, what mechanisms are firing neurologically uh, to essentially create the outcomes that we see. And the idea simply is that, uh, is that underlying capabilities would be revealed through these passions and neurologically uh, uh, sort of uh, proven, if you will. Uh, and that, being able to put a kid, for instance, in an fMRI, tap into their affinity. It could be an autistic kid. It could be many kinds of kids. And seeing what lights up neurologically will show the regions of the brain, and we have some sense of which regions they are, uh, are activating at a very high level. That is, in a way, a map of underlying capabilities that you can't show with ovals and a number two pencil. That will help us understand, and their families understand, and them understand, Here's where my compensatory muscles are. And I love that idea of compensatory muscles because it's something people go, oh, right, of course. You say, look, you look at Stevie Wonder or Ray Charles, and, and you're like, obviously. You know, or a guy comes back from Iraq, he's paralyzed. A few years later, he builds these giant, dexterous, muscular arms. Those are compensatory strengths. That's the way it works. And the way our brains work is not that different. What the world throws at us, our brains have to process it at mock speed, at very, very high speed. And what we do is we build compensations, compensatory pathways for the brain to find a way to do what it wants and needs. That actually is a better sense 
rather than the static, you're born with this DNA in your brain and here's your IQ and be happy with the cards you've been dealt. This is actually fitting with views of neuroplasticity that the brain is wildly plastic, changing probably, your brain probably changed this morning depending mm-hmm. what you had for breakfast. We're constantly rewiring it. Uh, it's building and growing new cells all the time. So right now, MIT and Yale are heading up uh, the affinity therapy research uh, and they're getting some funding. Um, uh, there are others as well. There's, in fact, the first international symposium on affinity therapy uh, in March, March 5th and 6th in Rennes, France. There's a big university there, one of the big ones in France, and they're holding, holding a global symposium. Folks are coming from all over the world uh, to talk about ways that some researchers already have said, uh, these affinities are the gold, really, the golden thread to lead to better lives, more fulfilled, more productive. And, and for some folks who are, who are not living that life because of the neurological hand they've been dealt, uh, much better lives for lots of people. Now, one in four folks globally right now have some neurologically expressed condition, so-called. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people and yeah. a, an enormous amounts of human capital that have uh, ended up in the discard pile. Uh, for no good reason. Not that there's ever any good reason, but but for no good reason, even based on what economists and others might might uh, might suggest. Well, of course, this is uh, this is a policy podcast first and foremost. So I have to ask about how uh, governments, uh, you know, nonprofit organizations, what things can be done to try and I would I say I guess reform the system mm-hmm. um, in order to be able to take advantage of you know the wide amount of talent. It seems like there's a question over how we assess ability and achievement. Yeah, you're right on it, Matt. I mean, that's your that's the key issue here. It's it's the tyranny of the metric. It's the the yardsticks we we use at this point to assess human ability, human talent, and reward it as such. I mean. It's kind of a bent yardstick, and almost everyone agrees about that. The, the, the problem is when you gold-plate it, it's hard to throw it away. And right now we have very, very much organized in front of many Western societies, societies all over the world, based on yardsticks that we know are wildly inadequate to the, the many expressions of human talent, ability, innovation, creativity. Mm-hmm. And so right now I think the big issue for governments is one, to exercise due humility to say their one-size-fits-all model of doing this is probably not working. Two, and not fitted with the information age, certainly. Two is to develop a new set of yardsticks that actually are uh, apt and able to measure the many expressions of human ability, intelligence, and acuity. There are many. There's a fellow here at Harvard, Howard Gardner, of course, who, who 30 years ago, you know, really sets the world on fire with the idea of multiple intelligences. Well, the fact is, is that the difficulty still is finding yardsticks. And comparative yardsticks are important in every direction, meaning there's certain things that my son, Owen, with his 75 measurable IQ, I mean, to put an IQ score on many people, I think, is, should, should be outlawed, uh, he does several things four and five times better than I do, and I teach at Harvard. So mm-hmm. he should get credit for that. And I should be taking that test on those areas along with him, right? So I am properly framed as well. Mm-hmm. That's what the world looks like 
when we are going to be more accurately assessing human ability. And what I say to, to many folks, and, and you know, I know folks who run governments around the world, that's part of my life, writing this is my sixth book, but the other five books, I traveled the world, I met with world leaders, I interviewed presidents, as I say, the countries that figure this out, they will be owners of the 21st century. Others will run to be like them. But there will be opportunities for the first movers because they will unleash human potential inside of their societies. Is the question about figuring out a way to measure these different, you know, uh, uh, abilities, is, is that the central question? Or is it, or is it more about trying to find ways to, uh, you know, enhance their, uh, their ability to function in our society? Well, I think it's both. I think it's both validating it through measurement. Because, you know, we have a very, very narrow yardstick now that mostly measures analytical ability, mm -hmm. narrow cast. Even now what we're finding is that the separations that we have long embraced between intelligence and emotion are just, they're, they're not there. The brain, it's all fitted together, which is why people perform so much better when they're emotionally engaged, mm -hmm. when they feel purpose you know, other than a, a narrow transactional purpose, I'm going to get this A so my mom will be proud and I'll forget it the next day. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to do this to get some bonus to spend it on something that has nothing to do with what I do every day here at the workplace. You know, all of those things are at the heart of where I think humanity is going. And so it's not just validating it through the yardstick. It's then saying, fine, because that is a value, I'm going to have a system that allows you as the individual to deepen, widen, harness, live through that rather than this essentially one-size-fits-all model. Now, the United States is rather unique in the world because of its uh, disparate educational system. Every state has different uh, different curriculums, uh, even down to various school districts. Everything can be different. Are there any in particular that have uh, shown a capacity to, I guess, do the things that you're, you're doing? Have, are there models out there to follow? Well, you know, it, it, there's a lot of interest from many states, certainly the more progressive states, to be frank, uh, who have much more well-funded uh, arrangements for folks who are, let's say, neurologically distinctive. Uh, but right now, many of the states that I talk to are saying, how would we structure this? Uh, you know, some of it uh, is happening in private schools or charter schools because they're saying we, we can shape ourselves to whatever's needed. And, and they may end up being those who lead the charge here. You know, the difficulty is, is that now since the Bush administration, we are now, um, uh, we've attached funding for education to fairly blunt and thin metrics mm -hmm. in terms of, of the test. Right. Teach to the test, win on the test, you get more funding. If you lose, it's taken away. You know, I think most educators, even some of the folks who supported those ideas, are saying the outcomes of that have been a, a modest at best and, and at worst, a negative. I think the Obama administration, with this sort of race to the top thing, is trying to seed innovation so that folks are rewarded as well for breaking mm -hmm. out of that model. Uh, and I think that, that this takes that many steps further. 
So what would you uh, prescribe if you were to, you sounds like you are talking to people at all levels of government around the world. What are you, what are you telling them exactly? Well, I'm telling them what I would put my energies into is I would, I would focus on validating, because that's important in a society, to validate the many, many types of ability that are part of the, the human array. Uh, at that point, you're going to have opportunities to make the match, if you will, where folks in the private sectors in your countries will say, oh, I, I want one of them. My goodness, we, we need that. Mm-hmm. And they will end up driving what, what we all call enlightened self-interest. The only thing that actually makes anything work in this noisy world of ours. That will help you reshape your education systems because there will be demand for them to be more apt and more able to tap, discover, validate, and unleash human potential, to nourish it through the lifetime of a young person into an adult, and to have it continue through their adult life. You know, many people I see when I, you know, I've written a lot of big American books. When I travel around the country, I see lots of folks caught in an old model, uh, and they know it. They know it. They're like, you know, I'm really good here, and I know this is my best thing, but I don't ever do that, <laughs> ever. Uh, there must be someone who wants that. Mm-hmm. And often when they find themselves either starved or deprived of being able to express this known ability that they have, uh, you know, they can really dry out. Uh, at the same time, they often put their energies into this is me, who I am. And right now, I can go online. I mean, you know, the change, I'm an old guy, I'm 55 years old. Mm -hmm. The change in my lifetime of being able to get all available knowledge, literally, Mm -hmm. on any device you hold in your hand. I mean, it's stunning. We used to have to go to the library. I mean, no one went to the library. You know, we'd have to get the right book. Someone have to tell you what book to read. Now, literally, we are linked solid and true to source materials, you read a great story, next thing you know you're reading something from the Journal of the American Medical Association. I mean, we are in a stunning era. I mean, we've crossed a Gutenberg moment, Mm -hmm. even though folks are just now recognizing what that means. Part of this idea is let's get these things tied together, these changes, so that we can end up moving forward in a kind of unison rather than some folks who are playing the old model forcefully, you know, getting their bonuses at Goldman Sachs and saying, sorry, I've got a little modem building too for mm-hmm. me and my people. Stay out. And and most folks who get this saying, no, no, we move forward together. In my 2008 book, Way of the World, I I was with Benazir Bhutto before she dies in Pakistan. I was, the, I guess, the last person to interview her and and we talked about this you know how everyone is connected how we all see everything now it's not like you know the divisions that once occurred and and really we all move forward together that's the only progress that's going to work and as we wrestle with divisions in the United States and in many countries in the West of deepening inequalities small segment moving forward of the population the rest drifting backward we now are at an inflection point where we can change the dynamic of uh, divided we cannot stand. 
uh, and I think I think it goes right down to these issues of seeing each other as we really are, allowing each of us to fulfill a a deeper constant and quotient of potential uh, to the good of of every sector of society. So that's a very exciting change, that unexpected moment that this book created. You know, I've I've been out in public for a long time, wrestling with presidents and dealing with classified information. You know, many of my books had you know stuff that's now the stuff being debated on torture, on surveillance, um, the war in Iraq. Um, you know, global news cycles just run; they run like the wind, uh, and being in the center of them, you know, it, it builds a thick skin on on anybody. Uh, it's um, it's a great twist that now we're in the center of a global news cycle. Uh, that's a big warm wave. Uh, that is one that's creating partnerships of people coming together from often disparate and seemingly unrelated realms, mm-hmm. even competitors, saying, "Okay, I get this part. W- what might we do?" So that's the change from a policy point of view. <laughs> well, Ron Suskind, thank you so much for being on today. Hey, my pleasure, Matt. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.